invite you to grab your Bible that you brought or from the pew and turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5. We've already had a very full and blessed Sunday morning service. We've got a potluck coming up after the service. I have taken all of that into account in my preparations for the sermon this morning, and we're just focusing on a shorter text, three verses with three house rules for Christians, three commands that ought to govern our lives as members of God's family, rules designed to bless and not to be a burden. Rules, three rules that are simply this, pray, uh, sorry, that's the second one. The first one is rejoice, secondly pray, and third, give thanks. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. I'll read the passage and then we'll ask for the Lord's help. First Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Holy Father, thank you that we've now come to the time in our lives and in the service where we can together as a family gather around your living and active word. I pray that as we meditate upon your scriptures that we would hear your voice and that you would use your voice, your words to shape us into the type of men and women and young people and church that you have called and redeemed us to be. Thank you for inviting and including us into your family and help us to conduct ourselves in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Amen. All right. What I find striking when I read these three commands, what I find especially striking is that the comprehensive nature of these commands. These are three things that we're supposed to be doing all the time. Each one is, is qualified as, as a, with, with words that indicate all the time. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right? So these are three things that we're supposed to be doing all the time. Here, the first one is rejoice always. Here's the problem. I don't always feel like rejoicing. And surely I'm not the only one in the room who doesn't always feel like rejoicing all of the time, which seems to indicate if we're commanded to rejoice always, but we don't always feel like rejoicing, then perhaps our rejoicing is not about our feelings. Here's my question. When we read this verse, when we read this two-word command, rejoice always, do we simply soften this? Do we simply classify this as biblical hyperbole, exaggeration, and then soften it in real life? So do we, do we read the command rejoice always, but do we translate it to simply mean rejoice a lot? Or does it actually mean what it says, that we are to rejoice always? That's a legitimate interpretive question. Some people think that what we have here is a kind of, it's kind of like when Jesus said, do you remember these words? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, nobody takes that to mean that you actually have to hate your parents in order to be a disciple of Jesus. Nobody thinks that. Rather, what people, how people interpret these words is to say that Jesus is employing hyperbole in order to make a very important point that if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to love God above all other loves, including family or anything. We need to love God more. And so perhaps this command to rejoice always is really just an exaggerated way of saying that Christians should rejoice a lot. Or, or Christians should rejoice when the situation calls for it. But not really actually rejoice always. That's a reasonable interpretation. I don't personally find it convincing though. I think, I think this verse actually means what it appears to mean, that Christians should rejoice always. But what does that mean? It's not hard to find counterexamples of, of, even in the Bible itself, it's not hard to find faithful people in the Bible who don't appear to be rejoicing. Right? The people of Israel don't appear to be rejoicing during the time when the book of Lamentations was written. In that book, they appear to be lamenting because they have been overrun by the Assyrians, not rejoicing. The mothers of the babies who were slain by Herod when our Lord was born, they were weeping and lamenting. They didn't appear to be rejoicing. Jesus himself wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. So what is going on here? What does it actually mean to rejoice always? How are we to obey this command? Well, here's my take on it. As I've said, I think that the command to rejoice always is not exaggeration, but it is meant to be obeyed literally all the time. I also believe that humans are complicated and that life is complicated and that it is possible for a human being to rejoice and lament at the same time. It's possible. And therefore, our continual rejoicing ought not to be dependent on our circumstances. Ought not to be dependent on our feelings. But I'll admit that that is not a normal way to approach life. Normally, rejoicing is linked to circumstances. Normally, when something good happens, we rejoice. And when something bad happens, we lament. So if our circumstances are not the cause for our joy, what is? Well, for starters, we should start with the main thing. The main thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a constant, unchanging source of our rejoicing in our lives. Right? That is a circumstance that does not change. Right? The unchanging fact is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's reason for rejoicing all the time because that fact never changes. To put that slightly differently, the source of our constant rejoicing is the promises of God and the presence of God given to the people of God. And those things are constant in our lives. The promises of God and the presence of God with the people of God. Those things don't change and they therefore provide an unshakable foundation for us in a very shakable world. All that we need can be found in Jesus. 
He is our teacher, our friend, our comforter, our companion. He is our high priest praying for us. He is a wise, faithful, gentle shepherd. He leads us. He feeds us. He guards us through the wilderness and brings us into green pasture. This is always true and unchanging. And these things are the source of our rejoicing in season and out of season. All the time we can rejoice because these things are all the time true. Which again, just to be clear, does not mean that Christians never weep or lament. Of course we do. It's just that we can do both at the same time. That's item one. Rejoice always. The second one, the second item, prayer, again places the emphasis on the fact that this is an activity and it's an all-the-time activity. We are to pray continually or constantly or without ceasing, depending on your translation. We all know what it means to pray, but what does it mean to pray without ceasing, to pray and never stop? Does anyone do that? Again, I think the tendency is to soften this and say, well, pray without ceasing means pray a lot. Just be a person who prays a lot. But I'm not sure that we should let ourselves off the hook that easily. It obviously does not mean that what we all need to do is immediately drop everything and only ever pray all the time from here on out. There's lots of work to do in this life. and We can't just all sit around and pray all day. But I think that praying continually means something like having a heart that is always open to God and his constant presence in our lives. I think it means that our dialogue with God is an ongoing dialogue. And in that sense, we're always or continually or without ceasing in dialogue with God. It means that we will frequently turn to him throughout the day with expressions of praise or care or concern or intercession or whatever. Prayer is a dialogue. Sometimes in a dialogue there are silences. That too is part of the dialogue. That doesn't mean the conversation has ended. In that sense, our conversation with God should be ongoing and unending throughout our lives. It never comes to a full stop, even though there might be periodic pauses during the conversation. So try this as a parallel. If someone says to you, I've been farming continually for the past six decades, you don't conclude that that individual has never slept or never ate or never gone to church or never taken a day off, right? You get it. You understand that this person is making a statement about their occupation and their identity as a farmer, which has been ongoing and unbroken. They've been farming for six decades. And even though there have been periodic pauses in that work, that person has never ceased to be a farmer. In a similar way, if a Christian saint was to say, well, I've been praying for these past six decades, you would not conclude that there have been no pauses or silences during that time, but you would conclude that that person's life has been marked by a regular and ongoing dialogue, interaction, conversation with God throughout the past Six decades. As a concrete example of what it looks like to pray continually, I always, in my mind, I think of that musical, Fiddler on the Roof, and the main character, Reb Tevya. Uh, if you've seen that musical, you know that throughout the musical, that guy is, has an ongoing dialogue between himself and the good Lord. He's constantly speaking to God, bringing his cares, concerns, questions to God throughout the day. And I think that gets, what it, gets at kind of what it means to pray continually. It means that we have an ongoing, open, unending dialogue with God throughout the day, 
It means that our lives are marked by regular, ongoing, unbroken fellowship with God. Does that describe you? According to this verse, it should describe all of us. Finally, one more command, another comprehensive command. We're supposed to rejoice always. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. And we are supposed to give thanks. Give thanks when? Give thanks in all circumstances. Again, it's the all circumstances, I think, that gives us pause. It's easy to think of circumstances in which rejoicing is the obvious and maybe even uncontainable response. We all know we're supposed to give thanks when the situation calls for it, right? No one needs to be told to rejoice at the healthy birth of a child or at an engagement or at the end of a war or even smaller things like being thankful after a great meal or a good grade on a test or even if your team wins. Those are all causes, causes for rejoicing. But all circumstances? Is that really what Paul means? Is that even possible? Do you know anyone who does that? Was I supposed to rejoice two weeks ago when our car was parked on the street and it was hit by another car? That's not a big deal. No one was hurt. But it felt like an inconvenience and it didn't really feel like a cause for rejoicing. Am I supposed to rejoice over my mom's challenging health situation? Doesn't feel like it. Are we rejoicing over the wars right now in Asia and Africa and the Middle East? What would that even mean to rejoice over that? Well, no, the answer is we don't. We don't rejoice over those things, but the wording in this verse is very, very important, so let's take a careful look. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. The preposition matters. Give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. That's a significant difference, right? In other words, it's possible to give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what we're facing, to give thanks in all circumstances. But that does not mean that we are mindlessly celebrating the sad and tragic things that happen in the world. It's possible to grieve someone's failing health while at the same time giving thanks to God for his loving kindness and his presence with us as we walk through the valley. That's not celebrating the sickness. That's thanking God for his provision and for his presence. That's recognizing that God can even bring good things out of painful circumstances. I, I, I'll give you two examples. One, one is a negative, kind of what not to do, and one is a positive. Uh, as a negative example, you could, I'm sure, think of your own, but what I thought of is this author that I heard speaking. Uh, Jonathan Acuff is his name. And he was talking about a book that he had written and was, got popular and got reviewed a lot on Amazon. And he was saying that if he goes to Amazon and looks, he can see over a thousand five-star positive reviews of his book. But there are also ten one-star or negative reviews of his book. And what he said is that he just simply cannot stop thinking about those 10 negative reviews, even though there's over a 1,000 positive ones. And I don't think that he is so uncommon in that. I think that we have a tendency in our minds. We all have this ongoing dialogue in our minds, right? We talk to ourselves. If not out loud, then we're still talking to ourselves. And oftentimes, that dialogue spins negative, turns, it kind of fixates negative, right? We're focused on the thing that's gone wrong. 
We're focused on the thing that we're anxious about. We're focused on the thing that we're worried about. And as a result, our heart posture is not one of giving thanks in all circumstances. So here's a positive example. George Matheson, he was a Scottish preacher. He had eyesight problems. He was, he was nearly entirely blind, and he had been ever since childhood. And one day he felt convicted by this Holy Spirit, and here's what he prayed. He prayed, My God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. I've thanked you thousands of times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. So teach me, Lord, the glory of my cross. Teach me, Lord, the value of my pain. And show me, Lord, how my tears have made rainbows. That's an example of what it means to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I don't think that Matheson was thanking God for the blindness itself. I think he was saying, Lord, this is my circumstance. Show me how I can use it for your purposes. Show me how you can make good come out of this. Teach me to give thanks in this circumstance. So, what are your circumstances? And are you giving thanks to God for those, in those various circumstances that you find yourself in? Or are you fixated on the negative? According to this verse, members of God's household are commanded to give thanks in all circumstances, the good and the bad. God is able to use it all for his purposes, and it is therefore appropriate and good for us to give thanks in all circumstances. All right, we made it. Those are the three comprehensive commands that God's children and his family are expected to obey all the time. That's easier said than done, but this is what it says. We are to rejoice always. We are to pray continually, and we are to give thanks in all circumstances. That is not always easy, but it is the path of blessing. This is what our good Father has told us. In Paul's words, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you. For these commands, we know, we recognize that these commands have been issued by you for our good. They're meant to bless, and yet it can be hard to obey these commands. It's not hard to do these things sometimes, God. It's easy. It's easy to rejoice sometimes. It's easy to pray sometimes. It's easy to give thanks sometimes. But the, the uniqueness of these commands, the uniqueness of being members of your household, is that these are your expectations of us always without ceasing, in all circumstances. And we just come before you and recognize that that can be challenging and hard. Life can be confusing and painful. And so we're asking for your help. Please help us to be a people who are marked by these characteristics, not sometimes, but all the time. In Christ's name, amen.